Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields related to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of the important issues of our times. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWANTTOSAVESEEDS.COM and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how to save your own. Today on this bonus podcast, we have a familiar voice as we talk with Bill McDormand about seed patenting and more. Welcome, Bill. Hello, Greg. Hello, everyone. We are going to talk seeds tonight, and I'm very excited about that. <laughs> Well, for people that may not know who you are, Bill, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us, you know, who you are, what you're up to these days. Who am I? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder. As far as seeds are concerned, as I sit here, I'm the executive director of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, which is a linked organization now of about 3,000 people who want to live into a day where the seeds that are used to grow the food in our region mm-hmm. come from our region. Mm. Real simple mission. Yeah. Turns out we're a long ways away from that, and it's a pretty complicated thing, but that's what we're trying to do. I'm a, the former executive director of Native Seed Search, and before that I ran my own bioregional seed company. Right, 28 years uh, yeah. I ran okay. Seeds, that's Trust, that's... Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens. And so um, over that period I learned a lot and listened to a a lot. If you think about it, that was before the internet. So in the early days, it was oh, a, yeah. a paper mail catalog. All of the feedback, a lot of it for a lot of years was phone calls. And so I got to talk to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've heard a lot about uh, the questions that people have concerning seats, and it's made me think deeply about what kinds of answers to give. So if you're out there, use this opportunity to tap into someone who just sat there and has been through this for now going on 35 years. And so I guess I'll leave my introduction at that. (laughs) Perfect. So this is uh, one of the backup webinars to our Seed School Online program, which is a 
essentially a nine week, it's seven weeks plus two bonus weeks of learning all about seed. So Bill, tell us a little bit about Seed School online and, you know, yeah, what it is and like well, that. In, in, uh, two, yeah, in 2010, I woke up one morning and I had this realization that in some ways in a big arc in my life, I had become the person that I had been looking for when I was 20 years old. Uh-huh. And I, let me explain. I I got involved trying to find seeds from my own garden when I was going to college. And it turned out after doing research that, you know, there was a big problem with seeds. Even then, we you could see it coming, that we were going to lose a huge amount of diversity, especially that diversity that was useful in small bioregions. And so mm-hmm. I was in western Montana, and the seeds that even my neighbors had grown a few years before had disappeared out of catalogs. We were seeing this huge centralization of the seed industry. And so we ended up finding a bunch of old stuff that was really great for Western Montana and starting a nonprofit and starting a little seed company to distribute it again. And so the problem began, how do you start and run a small seed company? How do you, you know, do the kind of education that what do people really need to know if they're going to get involved in growing and saving their own seeds again? Right. And in my adventure, I found a gentleman, Ken Fisher, who was in western Montana. He was about, I don't know, 150 miles away near Bozeman, Montana. And he had been there for 40 years on his five-acre parcel running a small seed company. He had about wow. 40 seed racks. He printed his own catalogs. He grew his seed, put them in the packets, and sold them. And that's how he made his living. It was Fisher's Garden Seeds. It was perfect. And I showed up at his door one day. I had been trying to call him and communicate, and we did a little bit, but I showed up there one day and said, I'm here. And he says, yeah. And I said, what I really want to do, Ken, is go to work for you. I need to learn everything that you're doing. You know, this is what we, you're the guy that could teach me all this stuff. And he said, uh, he walked me out onto the porch, and he put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, let's take a little walk. And we we walked around his five acres and up and down the street there in Belgrade, Montana, uh-huh. And he finally said to me, he said, Bill, you know, my wife and I are in our 70s. We got this down. We've been doing this for decades now. Blanche comes over from across the street when we need help packaging. But otherwise, it's all, you know, he said, frankly, I'll be honest, you would be in the way. We don't need you here. Oh, wow. He said, I understand what I understand what you want, and I, and, and I feel like uh, I want to help. So you have any question at all, whenever... You come over and see me or you call me or you write to me and I'll help you however I can. And he was invaluable over the next 20 years. He finally passed away. But he gave me incredible varieties of things that are no longer available. Um, Fisher's finally closed. His daughter ran it for a while, but it's gone. So things like Montana Marvel Peas and Northern Lights Tomatoes. And uh, it's just this incredible things that a Candy Mountain Corn would not be around had they not been passed on and kept alive by my little company. So I feel really blessed about that. But when I woke up in 2010, I thought, my God, I've been running a seed company now for more than 25 years or almost 25 years. I'm Ken Fisher. I could help uh, other people do this. Yeah. And that became the germ for the idea of seed school. 
And so now as we sit here, we have almost a 1,000 graduates. It was a six-day program, originally 10-day, now it's a six-day program. We've taken it all over the country, Hampshire College, University of Montana. It's just been this incredible thing. People have come from all over the world to attend it. Then we got started getting calls for a one-day version of it, so we boiled it down. That was really hard. How do you boil down six days into one day? How do you boil a whole life down into that? You know, is basically yeah. what we were doing. And so we got it down to one day, and then we took the best of that and all the feedback we got from all those people, and we put it. We finally got together. Thank you, Greg Peterson, and put it online mm-hmm. in an online version just trying to keep up with the technology. And so that's what Seed School Online really is about. It's like, how do we distill the best of all that we've learned? All that Ken Fisher taught me, actually, too, you know? How do you get those most important things into a format and get it out to the most people around the world? And so I I really think Seed School Online is our best attempt at that yet, and we're getting great feedback on it from all over. We just got somebody from Barbados that wrote us that's going to start a seed library there because of the, her involvement in the course, and she's so excited. So, nice. so that's seed school. I love the stories that you tell around you know, <laughs> people walking up to you and saying, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for seed school. You're trying to figure out where they came from, and they got it online. Yeah, it's really hard. Now, I used to rec- I could at least recognize faces for everybody that came to a seed school, but now people walk up to me. Like they know me, you know, and I can, right. I just, I go, I, I don't quite place it. And then they go, oh, I took it online. I go, oh, <laughs> wow, good. <laughs> How was it? <laughs> nice. So if you haven't taken Seed School Online and would like to, SeedSchoolOnline.com will get you to the page, the information page for that. So there you go. So where do you want to start at tonight, Bill? You know, let's take the time to do a little bit of education. You know, the story I just told reminds me of why I'm doing this. Uh-huh. We need to get as many people growing and saving their own seeds as quickly as possible. I really, I believe that more than ever. I don't think there's yeah. anything more more powerful we can do. And I'm working on a little essay for the uh, seed broadcast folks. I love to write for their little newspaper. Mm-hmm. And it's about how... Seeds are the most important and powerful technology we can use um, politically, economically, socially, culturally, spiritually right now to change our world. And we've got to change it. I, you know, that's just my my scenario for the future. Yeah. And so I don't know what yours is, but my guess is that if you're around seed saving, the seeds themselves have taught you to at least pay attention to larger environmental in ecological cycles. And once you start to understand those, you know, there is a sense of urgency yeah. about the world today. Populate, we're headed toward 9 billion people all of a sudden. We just crossed 8, you know, the other day. Did we really? Man. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to be at uh, 8.6 soon. They're looking at, you know, they're already talking to 9 billion people. I mean, it's just wow. out of control. And the systems we have set up can't sustain it. And now they're challenged with climate change and so mm-hmm. so grow and save your own seeds so what is keeping us from doing that well there's really you know as we like to teach in seed school there's really nothing keeping us from doing that in this country yet almost everything that you see you can save the seeds from you know most of the genetic all of the genetically modified stuff you know is not never gets down to home gardener or small farmer right. levels 
you have to say, sign a 50-page contract to buy that stuff, and it's just not worth it to sell it in small quantities. And so we've been left with the rest of it. And, and so there's been a big debate in the seed-saving world over the last decade or so, especially about, well, start with non-hybrid seeds. Start with open-pollinated seed because it's easier, and it is, and it's really incredible. And some of the land-race varieties that we've been left with are true treasures. There was this golden period in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s where companies like Heinz and Campbell's Soup got involved in making these open-pollinated varieties better and better and better and selecting for flavor for their soups and stuff. And so all that material is out there. We could have a field day. I, I really believe we have enough stuff to save ourselves if we'll just pick up again with this activity of seed saving. You know, what we teach in our seed schools now, though, is that you can save seeds from hybrids. We can dehybridize everything mm. also. I mean, it takes a little bit more work. It's a little bit more advanced. But there's been a lot of work done by companies, especially in disease resistance. And so, you know, you know around curly topper, late blight, or early blight and tomatoes, those sorts of things. And there are parts of the country now starting to experience those again. And new diseases are moving in everywhere. The disease pressures with climate change are on almost everywhere. And so there's a lot of great stuff out there. But, you know, in seed school, we teach you how to save seeds from hybrids. So, you know, uh, as I say uh, to people, especially if I'm in a restaurant and somebody bites into a really great tomato and they go, uh -huh. gosh, that is, oh, my God, that is so good. I say, save the seeds. And they look at me kind of funny and they go, but I don't know what variety it is. And I go, I don't care. Yeah. You know, and they say, but it, but it could be hybrid. I don't care. You know, if you find something that's worth saving, save it. We can figure out how to dehybridize it, and it's a pretty simple process. So that's you know, takes us up till today. What we are seeing for the first time infiltrating many of our major seed companies, and these are companies that sell certified organic seed. Mm -hmm. These are the companies that are selling to our uh, farmers market farmers, our market farmers that are doing CSAs, growing for restaurants that we eat in, for the first time, they're starting to sell a substantial number of patented seeds. Mm. And that makes it, now we got a problem in saving because there are two different levels of patenting, and I can talk about that just a little bit. But one level, utility patents expressly say it is illegal for you to save the seeds. The 10,000-plus-year adventure of human interaction with nature to create our entire food supply just came to an end. We can't take part in it anymore. All that work that was done to bring us lettuce 4,000 years ago in Egypt, they figured out how to you know, save prickly lettuce into romaine. And now somebody comes along and takes all that work, tweaks a gene or two, and patents it, a utility patent, and you, it is illegal for you to save the seeds. That's in this country. This has to do with hybrid and non-hybrid seed. And a lot of it's certified organic because that's the, the new market niche. And so I think we need to start a national discussion about this. Hmm. Because for me, it's the first real pinch in what we're seeing policy-wise to keep us as seed savers from really winning the day. And I, and I have every confidence that we're going to. You know, that a grassroots movement of seed savers across this country 
can grow and save enough seeds and adapt it in enough places that we'll have enough as the climate changes, as our local economies wake up and we realize that, wow, I don't have to compete in the market anymore at the farmer's market. I'm not just selling carrots. I'm selling Nash Huber's carrots because yeah. my name is Nash Hubert and I saved my own carrot seed, right? And so now there's lines of people at the Seattle Farmer's Market lining up to buy Nash Huber's carrots. And he can charge more for them, right? Because they're better. Why are they better? Because he saved the seeds from the ones he liked that tasted better. I mean, this simple process can save us economically as well as genetically. So talk to us about patented seeds. You said there's two kinds. Uh, and one of the questions I really want to ask you is if you have a seed, something you've grown out and you save the seeds from it, or that tomato in the restaurant and you save the seed from it, how do we know if that's a patent seed? Well, you don't. Yeah. And up until now, there was no no problem with it. And so that's a problem. One could argue that if you're just going to go home and plant it and use it uh-huh. for your own use, that's more of a problem for the company that owns the patent than it is for you. Because nobody's ever going to, you know, come around and check every backyard for patented material. There's mm-hmm. just not enough time, energy, or money to do that. In fact, I was just with Vanta Nashiva for three days, who is the great seed activist from India. And when she was telling me, uh, India is where half, get this, Greg, half of all the world's farmers live. There are 50 million farmers wow. in India. And so what they did was they got uh, uh, one of the rice varieties that they like there was patented. It had a utility patent on it. It was illegal to save the seeds. So her organization, Navdanya, got some seeds and they grew it out. And they saved the seeds, which is illegal. And then they distributed it through their network of 110 seed banks, they call them. They're like community seed distribution centers. Wow. And this is public knowledge? To ten, yeah. That she told me the story. Up to 10,000 farmers got these patented rice seeds and started growing them. Uh-huh. And along with the, the project, they passed out postcards. And the postcards said, I have your patented variety. It was distributed to me through my community seed bank. I am growing the seeds and saving them and further distributing them to the farmers around me. And they mailed all these postcards, 10,000 postcards to the company saying this. And they dropped the patent. They what? They stopped yeah, the patent? Yeah, what did they do? There's just no way for them to do it. And this is the kind of activism that, that Vanda Nashiva represents. Yeah. So in our country, we don't have nearly as many farmers, and we're not to that level, you know, not, is what yeah, I tried to yet. explain to her. But I, it's a story that I like to tell. So anyway, you know, plants were never allowed to be patented in all of our country's history. Whenever there was a suggestion that somebody mm-hmm. could own life, it just doesn't make sense. Right. You know, it took so long to develop these varieties that all our food came from wild plants. You know, from prickly lettuce. Corn came from teosinte, this tropical grass. You know, peppers came from chiltepines, this perennial shrub that grows down in northern Mexico. I mean, you try to eat one of those, 
you know, as a as a bell pepper. I, it'll burn you up. There's just not enough food there. So somebody had to work and save those seeds for a long, long time to get these crops into workable fashion. I think it was it William Wars Weaver or someone said once, he had a really great analogy. He uh-huh. said, what happens if every time you save seeds from something in your yard and you make it a little bit better, you put a quarter down and then you know, to represent what just happened. And then somebody takes those seeds and grows them out and makes it a little better and you put another quarter down. And now we've got these quarters that, you know, stacks of quarters that are literally for some of our crops 10,000 years old. And now one of these modern companies comes along and puts a quarter on the top of the stack and uh-huh. claims they own the whole stack. It's yeah. theirs. And no no one else can do that ever again for that patented plant. So right. in 1930, after incessant lobbying by the Seed Trade Association, plants were finally allowed to be patented. But there was an exception. Plants that produce seeds... And seeds could never be patented. This was in 1930. It was only plants that were being cloned for fruit trees and for flowers mm-hmm. that could be patented. That was the compromise they made. And that lasted clear up until 1970 during the Nixon administration when for the first time they allowed the patenting of seed-producing plants. Mm-hmm. But again, they put an exception in there. It was illegal to sell or distribute the seeds that you saved from a plant that was patented. They called this a Plant Variety Protection Act, and it's known mm-hmm. as PVP patents. You could, but you could save your own seeds and use them. Farmers have always done that. That is a human right. If right. you grow something, you can save your own seeds and plant it. And that had to be in the Plant Patent Act in 1970, or they would never would have passed. It was just unthinkable to take away farmers' rights to save their own seeds. In 1980, the Supreme Court ruled that literally anything under the sun could be patented. This was a famous case, uh, Diamond versus Chakrabarty. Chakrabarty was the guy who had genetically modified a bacteria to eat oil. Oil, I remember that. His plan was, yeah, dump it into the ocean and eat up the oil spills. But it started eating other things, like the oil on the ships that were carrying this stuff. And it was like this. It almost turned into a scientific nightmare. Anyway, he won his suit, and they allowed him to patent it. And anything could be patented under the sun. It's really interesting that Clarence Thomas was the deciding vote in that case on the Supreme Court. And he Uh was a former attorney for Monsanto. So you can kind of see how this all got lined up. All right. So anyway, since that day, we've had so-called utility patents. All you have to do is really show that it's useful, that it's uniform, that it's different, it's unique, and you can get a patent on it. And so since 1980, there's just been this avalanche of not just plants and plant varieties, but plant characteristics that have been patented. And that's what we're struggling under today. Now those are coming into our seed catalogs that we all know and love and the companies that that certainly I grew up with that made uh-huh. possible the local food revolution in this country. And all of a sudden, nobody's talking about it. It's hard to find the patented plants in the catalogs. 
And I've got several examples. I'm working on a little article where um, some of the varieties even aren't even um, listed as patented and are being sold in some of the catalogs. And in the defense well, of the companies, they're saying, well, well, they weren't patented when we first got them. The patent had been applied for, and we just hadn't gotten the update, so we hadn't updated our catalog or our website oh, yet. Right. Well, that becomes, if I write something, so let's talk about copyright law or patent law just real quickly. And that is if I write something and don't put a, you know, circle C copyright by Greg Peterson, the Urban Farm 2017, that's putting notice on that, on that article that somebody can't copy it and use it. Right. And it becomes my responsibility to manage that. So I'm assuming that it becomes, given that standard way of being in the patent and copyright office, that it's the seed company's responsibility to make sure that the seeds are marked as patented. And then if somebody, you know, steps on that patent, it's the seed company's problem to go after them. Because that's the same way it right. is for me with, you know, copyright and trademark. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I've been having an ongoing conversation with one of the companies, mm -hmm. and they don't see it that way. Because first of all, virtually all, not all of it, but virtually all of the utility patents in the catalogs that we would know the names of in this country uh -huh. were developed and patented by other companies. Yeah, almost none of the seed companies that we know and love um, grow their own seeds, or very much of their own seeds. Uh -huh. Up until really recently, and those are small entities, you know, Don Tipping at Siskiyou Seeds is trying to do that and has the large, a vast majority of his seeds are being grown by him or people he knows right uh -huh. around him. Same with Casey O'Leary at Snake River Seed Co-op, uh, Rowan White Sierra Seed Co-op out in California. The, now, but we've just seen the, the rise of that in the last less than five years. L let me stop you here yeah, because you're, what you're talking about, you're, these people that you're talking about, are they patenting seeds or not? No, these people are, aren't. They're, Great, I wanted a to clarify generation, that. Right. These, this is a new generation of seed distributors that are really bioregional, which is what I you know, uh, subscribe to. In right. other words, they want the seeds from their regions to come from their regions. And so much of the utility patented material, not all of it, there's some uh, companies doing it in Salinas, California, but a lot of the stuff, especially the certified organic seed that you see that's patented, is uh -huh. coming from Europe. And the, and the companies, the seed companies that are producing it in Europe are actually owned by chemical companies in Europe. Uh -uh. I mean, the whole thing is just this, and it's hard to find your way through it. So, yes, I would say that companies like Vitalis, and Bejo and Genesis, I'm throwing out some names. These are uh, breeder developer companies mm -hmm. that are coming up with these new varieties that are um, placing utility patents on them. All right. But you can't buy seeds from them. You, what you have to do is buy them from companies in the United States that are, are their distributors, their Got vendors, it. so to speak. Yeah. So we're dealing with our vendors and it's not their responsibility. They don't think. It may be, you know, Vitalis' responsibility to follow their copyright, as you were talking about. Right. And make sure these things are marked. But, you know, if you're putting out a catalog, I understand this. If you're putting out a catalog once or twice a year, and you don't get word that something's patented, by the time you go to press, you print it without that notification. 
And so what I've been calling for is full transparency and a current list somewhere. Yeah. And this is what I think we should all ask for. If you are buying seeds in this country, every time you buy them from now on, ask if any of the seeds are patented and ask them for a list of all the patented seeds that they're selling. It's really simple. And then we can have a choice of seed savers. I don't want to buy something if there's a mistake or it's a delayed registration on their website and get it and maybe have it say patented on the packet, you know, because I want to save my own seeds. So at this point, if you want to be on the up and up, I think all of our vendors need to be on the up and up and be fully transparent about this. And they're far from it, at least at this point. And so I'm still doing research. I'm not going to mention names of the companies yet because, you know, they're all great people. We love and we need them. You know, we need this new emerging local food, you know, medium-sized level of agriculture to feed ourselves. I mean, it doesn't have our own seeds in it yet, but right. we're working on that. This is a big transition. And so just understand the difference also then between PVP patents. These are if – you, if you buy something, and I've uh-huh. got, you know, I found a, an open-pollinated certified organic pepper – and I think I found it was at High Mowing Seeds that it has a PVP patent on it. Hold on, hold it's on, patented. hold on. Organic, open pollinated. Wow. Sweet pepper. All right. It has a PVP patent on it. So what that means, to go back to what I talked about in the beginning, that means mm-hmm. you can save your own seeds. And you can even use it in a breeding program on your own. All right? You mm-hmm. cannot legally resell them or give them away without permission of the company that holds the patent. But, you know, in opposition to that are utility patents. And let me read a little bit of the language. It says seed can only be used for crop production. They cannot be used for seed saving, replanting, resale, giving away, or use in any breeding program. Mm -hmm. All right? In a sense, you're not buying them. You're leasing them to grow a crop. They're not yours. And that's a huge change. So ask if your vendor has a list of all the patented seeds. Find out which ones are PVP and which ones are utility. And then we can go forward and make our own decisions. And I think we should leave it at that. But we need that kind of transparency right now. I think we really need it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. I have a question here from Nan Fisher. Welcome, Nan Fisher. Uh, she says, Bill, do seed companies have to disclose patented seeds? That kind of goes to what we were talking about, but kind of dig into that a little more. In order to distribute seeds legally, mm-hmm. to sell them, you probably, most states, not all of them, but almost all states now have what is known as a seed labeler's license. You need a seed dealer's license, and you need a seed labeler's license. Were those the or two I just bought for our seed up? That, those are the two you just bought from Arizona. Yeah. And there is specific language that is passed. It's, you know, it's codified legal language in, in the Arizona statutes mm-hmm. that tell us what those rules are, what you have to label and what you don't. And my guess is that this is relatively new. And it's not necessarily in the language of these labeling laws. And there's not going to be any other seed police 
that comes along and check on these guys. And certainly, you know, from my discussion so far with some of the catalogs is that, you know, they're doing their best and they don't really care at this point if every variety in their catalog is is accurately labeled. They said, we'll do our best. But again, we can't update our web page every day and we don't certainly don't print our catalogs every day. So there could be things in there that are patented that are not labeled correctly. And we'll do our best and we think that that's legal. So I'll just leave it at that. What yeah. will change this is if we all start asking and ask and yeah. ask and ask. Because the easiest answer to all of this for everybody is for every single one of these companies to have their list. Right. These are the patented varieties we sell. That way you know right up front. And they could update a list easily and have it available for everyone. They just don't think it's important yet. What's the big deal? We've been doing this. You know, why not uh, pay people? You know, yeah, I mean, these guys spent all the money to develop these right. varieties. What's wrong with them owning it? Right. And and there is something really wrong with it. As I said before, you know, it just goes against the grain of everything that's ever happened with humanity. And it's had this other side effect. When you have something patented, mm-hmm. a variety, you can you can show that as an asset on your balance sheet for your corporation. Mm-hmm. You can make your corporation worth more. Why would you want to do that? Well, there's only one real reason that companies do that, and that's so that they have more muscle when there's a merger or acquisition. Mm-hmm. And we have seen 20,000 C companies become a half a dozen in the last 25 years since we've allowed plant patenting. You know, and so if you don't like the continual merging of the seed industry, then you should not believe in plant patenting because that's one of the major direct consequences that we're all having to deal with. I mean, we're, we had six companies that owned about 72% of the world's seeds, and now they're all merging. And so we're going to end up with three companies that own. You know, the, uh, our current government is, not, is turning a blind eye to mergers, and mm-hmm. so Dow DuPont are about to merge. Tangenta is actually being sold to Kim China, which is one of the largest chemical companies in, in China. Wow. And Syngenta is being sold to Bayer, which is a Belgium company. And so, you know, it's just this incredible concentration and centralization of seed energy in very little, few hands. And that's just not good. Yeah. Those people, if you live like we do in a French climate, you know, Phoenix is not normal for agriculture in the United States, you know. <laughs> if we're going to grow stuff in Arizona, it has to have special characteristics. Well, nobody in one of those three companies is targeting deserts yet right. for their breed and production. We're just too small of a market, right? You go mm-hmm. for the big bread basket. That's just good logic, corporate logic. So you don't want just a few seed companies. What we want is 20,000 Ken Fishers out there. Yeah. Right? And little ones, you know, like in Belgrade, Montana, breeding stuff that works right where you live. That's yeah. what we want. If we're going to, you know, I personally, the older I get, the more I think we should just return it to a, a public resource, the community square, you know, that we all own all of our seeds and we take them down to a seed exchange or a seed library right. and exchange them every year. 
and and together develop this resource without ownership being involved. But, you know, we're market-driven people, and I understand that now, and that's really the way to distribute things quickly. So let's put up with that, but let's not have mega corporations. My God, it's just not good for biodiversity. Well, and I think, so, you know, talking about biodiversity, you know, we have very, in this country, we have very, very few farmers here. And uh, in India, you said they have the most farmers on the planet. I, I think really that's my goal is to build systems that people can learn how to grow their own food and right in their front and backyard and, you know, maybe produce 2% of the food that they eat or 4% or produce enough that you can share it with neighbors. You know, Heidi, my sweetheart, just left here a little while ago. She left the house and she always takes a basket of groceries from our yard to her the person that owns the yoga studio so that she teaches at on Tuesday nights. Right. You know, it's just something wow. that she does. So, you know, that's really what I'm after is to, you know, empower empower us to figure out where our own food comes from and, you know, honestly, it all starts with seeds. Yeah, we're not going to last long. If there's a disruption in the supply, I was trying to think about this this morning. Uh If there's a disruption in the supply of these mainly now utility patented seeds, and a lot of this um, is for greens. The greens that are being grown in these Uh closed environments, aquaculture and hydroponics, Uh all this new kind of stuff, I mean, that's the, you know, at University of Arizona now, that's the future of agriculture. Yeah. Oh, we'll just grow everything indoors. It'll all be, you know, machine and robotically controlled. We'll use less water, you know, and less soil and less fertilizer and less all this stuff. I mean, they're using more energy, but nobody's talked about that yet. Yeah. You know, we figure it's like 288 calories of energy in for one calorie of energy out in the lettuce that they're that they're harvesting. Oh, my God. But I came to the realization that almost all of that industry is being fueled. The seeds are coming from northern European companies that have mm. figured out how to do this in, in front of us. And if there's a disruption in that seed supply, <laughs> wow. Now, yeah. there's literally nobody. And I've been pitching this for several years now. I spoke at the National Aquaponics Conference. Oh, wow. And I was trying to get them interested. I said, can you believe what would happen if you grew and saved seeds that were adapted to your own aquaponic culture? Mm-hmm. You know, start adapting them to that. That's your environment. Yeah. And so you have aquaponically produced and aquaponically adapted seeds. Who would want those, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I just thought it's a really great market, but that has yet to develop. So we'll see. Well, and, and, you know, when you talk, I, I just want to address this since you brought it up. You said a disruption in the supply. Now, we're, we are not talking about end-of-the-world scenarios here. We're talking things as simple as a power outage or a trucker strike, both of which have happened in the last 10 years on the planet. About five or six years ago, I, I'm not knowing the specific, remembering the specifics of it, but there was a trucker strike in the U.K. and food stopped moving. Yeah. And in 2000, and I'm going to guess 2011, there was a three-day power outage in September in San Diego County. Now, those don't specifically, you know, impact seeds, but it impacts food. You know, so well, we're not and it talking, could impact seeds. It could absolutely. Yeah. 
We're talking things that could happen, a, a storm or things that could happen on a, oh, hey, how about this? They have a seed, you know, imagine this scenario where they have this, you know, this uh, doomsday seed vault and they go into it once every six months and they find water running through it. Oops. <laughs> because <laughs> By the, the way, that's not a... Permafrost not, is melting? Yeah, the permafrost is melting. That actually happened. Yeah, it did. Well, you know, it's like if your seeds are coming from Northern Europe, think of all the things that could happen there. Mm-hmm. You know, I met a farmer... Uh, from a, a, a farmer's market a couple of summers ago, I, well, I think it was in Wyoming or Montana, and he said for some reason his um, seed order uh, got mixed up and it was delayed three weeks coming from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. It just didn't show up for three weeks. Well, if you're from the Mountain West and you only have a 90-day growing season and you just lost 21 of those days... Because your seeds didn't show up in the mail, major disruption. Yeah, major disruption in his uh, cash flow for the summer. Yeah. You know, he just doesn't have a whole lot lot of time to grow stuff to get it to the farmers markets, and so it's even a delay in shipment is what yeah. you know could be possible. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a fragile system, and the the sad part of that is that you know you can build in resilience and redundancy. And seed production and food production, if you if that's your goal in your region, mm-hmm. and that's what we need to get back. I mean, it, we had such an elegant system at one point in this country. So you know, this isn't even pie in the sky dreaming. This is what we had you know, two generations ago, in so many ways. This is what many places in Europe have reawakened to and figured out. You know, I was in Crete. And every little cafe I ate in, I, I would ask, and I'd try to get somebody to explain to me. And virtually everything I ate in that cafe was grown within 200 yards of the cafe. Wow. The olives were grown olive oil. They were growing the wheat. They were picking the green to make the spin, you know, that it was vlitos, they called it, which is was in their spanakopita. They mm-hmm. had the red wine that they ate from their own grapes. I mean, it was just this incredible I mean, and if their particular little plot went down, their neighbors all had it. I mean, it was just everywhere you went. It was all fresh and local. It was just incredible. You know, the quality you just couldn't. I mean, that's why we really should be thinking about this or the positive reasons. It's just better. (laughs) It's so much better. You know, I want to talk about something that you and I talked a lot about this weekend. So just full disclosure, Bill and Bell and I spent the weekend together hanging out. And we talked a lot about grains and uh, we actually filmed a, a quickie video. Quickie means it's not real professional. A quickie video of us harvesting some, well, I guess we didn't actually harvest the corn seeds, but we got the corn seeds. We cooked the corn seeds. We ground them up. We made them into tortillas. Why don't you tell us, tell us about that process, Bill, because it was amazingly simple. Well, it's really why we have civilizations in the Western world. You know, the mm-hmm. Inca, the Maya, and the Aztec were all corn-fueled civilizations. Without corn, they wouldn't have happened. That's where mm-hmm. the majority of the calories and nutrition came from. And so they figured out a long time ago that if they cooked their dried corn with ashes, uh, whereas we yes. know now in a really alkaline solution, that it would dissolve the pericarp, the outside mm-hmm. layer of skin off the corn kernels. And when you do that, it releases the flavor 
And then we only found out later in, with modern science that it releases the B vitamins and allows those to be digested. So oh, nice. corn becomes a more complete, more complete food. Yeah. And so that process we, we know today as nixtamalization. <laughs> nixtamal, nixtamal is an Aztec word. I, did, I just heard this the other day. There are a million people in Mexico that still speak the original uh, a dialect of the original Aztec language. Do you realize wow. that? Wow. They, they, they have X's in all the words like nixtamal. Anyway, so if you have not had nixtamalized corn that's fresh ground, what we're finding out now is maybe up to 40 to 45% of the nutrition in a grain kernel, and that includes corn, can be gone 24 hours later because of oxidation after you break the, the shell, so to speak. Uh-huh. If you have fresh ground, nixtamalized corn, you're walking into a world like none other. It is just this vibrant, incredibly satisfying and flavorful food. And so that's what we did. We boiled dried corn seeds. I, actually, all I did was bring it to a boil. Uh-huh. Instead of using ashes, I used three tablespoons of cooking lime. It's calcium hydroxide. In Mexico, they call it cal. You can buy it at feed stores in the United States in 50-pound bags sometimes. Oh, we found a product on the shelves in some stores called pickling lime right. that we use. And so, yeah, it's just it's a, a cleaner way of getting that alkaline solution. So if you just bring your corn seed to a boil and then turn it off and let it sit there until it cools off enough, it'll take you an hour or so uh, to put your hands in it. Then you can put your hands in and knead those soaked corn kernels a bit. And the, the rest of the skins will all come off and the and right. the water will get really cloudy. And so what I do then is rinse all that off, and I put those kernels back in the pot with some fresh water, and then I'll cook it for two or three or four hours, depending on where I'm cooking it. My favorite is our solar oven. I oh, just yes. put it outside for the rest of the afternoon, at about, and it stays at about 300, 350 all day, and it just cooks it. And so you can tell it's done because it pops, so to speak. It starts to um, turn itself inside out, it looks like. It's hominy, basically. Oh, right. And so what we did... Remember, we drained that hominy. Uh-huh. It was still yep. warm, and I ground it in my little hand grinder that I got in Mexico, and uh, that makes the perfect consistency for tortillas. We did a mm-hmm. blue corn. So we have blue corn tortillas. I have a little tortilla press after that. I put a little bit of salt in it to flavor it, but otherwise you don't need anything. You don't need any liquid or anything. It's just the perfect consistency. And then we put them on a really hot griddle. We have uh, In Mexico, they call them camals. You want it really hot because if you think about it, the corn's already cooked. Oh, so right. All you're doing is putting the, the, those black marks on it, you know, that make them look like tortillas. And that's what really yeah. gives it flavor. So, you know, 20 seconds, 20 to 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds on each side, and those babies are done. Wow, what a great – if you have done this, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't done it, you're in for a treat. Yeah. I mean, we 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 taught a seed school at Rama Navajo Reservation in I think it's on the Arizona New Mexico border, mm-hmm. and it turned out that everybody that came to our seed school had never eaten fresh ground corn this way before. That the generation that was alive there in the reservation had drifted wow. their original you know ways of doing things, and so we got to reintroduce this to them. 
And this, I'll never forget this native woman. She got so excited. Great. She broke my tortilla press. She was pushing <laughs> so hard. She was going so fast and pushing. She just had to have more, you know. And yeah. so that's how I like that. Now that's what happens. You just get so into it. You just want more, you know. It's yeah. great. Well, you know, and I, I can so appreciate that wanting more and being moved by it. I, uh, I, I'm kind of a, I'm like that here. And so recently we were actually harvesting apples off of our trees here and pressing it into apple cider, which a friend of mine was who was here helping us press the apples. Uh, she took five gallons of apple cider from us, took it home, and is oh, going wow. to make apple wine out of it. And I, I just I was moved. Pretty much moved to tears that, you know, basically we're, you know, we're making this apple cider and here pretty soon it's going to show up back in my, in my kitchen is apple wine. And I've had apple wine for my apples here and it is absolutely extraordinary. So coming up with your own food, it's, it's a, a daily happening here at the urban farm. We eat something out of the yard every single day and I challenge everybody out there to do the same thing. Oh. Well, yeah, we know how good it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you've been so good at that, spreading that gospel, so to speak. <laughs> how many years have you been doing this now? It's got to be. Me? 25, yeah. Well, how long you have know, I been growing you, my own but, food and eating it? 42. Yeah, and then how many? How long have you been having people come into your yard to learn about how to do it? Um, 26, 27 years. There you go. Yeah. See? Yeah. Well, it's what I have to do. You know, I, I, I am so incredibly blessed. I get to do what I'm called to do every day. Wow. So, well, you're, you know, I was so moved by your, your dream a few years ago to do, uh, when you came up and said, Oh, I have a good idea. Let's do 10,000 urban farms in yeah. Phoenix. In Phoenix, yeah. And at the time, that just seemed like there were, you know, I, uh, you could count them on one hand. Yeah. You no, know, maybe, of people that were really into this in a new modern way, you know, that they really right. wanted to learn how to care themselves again. And so how many, right. how many of them are there now, do you think? I would guess that there are several thousand of them. People, and here's, here's what I tell people. It's really simple. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. That's what I'm talking about because farmers grow food. So if you're growing food and sharing it with somebody, you can call yourself a farmer. Go for it. And it just it really in, invigorates the local food movement. And calling your farm something, it, it builds that infrastructure out in, in cities. So, yeah, the most important piece right there as far as I'm concerned is, you know, make a name for yourself or your food. Yeah, if the city of Phoenix was smart, they'd have a registry and charge you a permit to be able to name. Oh, name my God. No politicians you listening, see, right? <laughs> you can see how the world goes, right? Everybody yeah. wants a piece of the pie. Yeah. yeah. Parting thoughts until yeah. next month, Mr. Bill. Well, I, you know, this is really a pleasure just to spend time with you and, and to have people out there who really want to learn and listen a little bit. And so, you know, my parting thought is that, you know, you told me a story about your own urban farm there and seed saving about your basil seed. Oh, yeah. You know, let's go home on the basil seed story. That's your story. And I've used that now in our seed schools. You know, so you started out growing your own food in the city and then you yep. started teaching people about it 
and now you're doing seats. And so how hard was that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and in this particular case, you know, it's just the seeds that come up in my backyard and in a more desert area of our backyard that don't always necessarily get water. And they just, you know, keep coming back year after year. So they're becoming urban farmized seeds that are more desert adapted. And it's really that simple. And, and honestly, at any given moment now here at the urban farm, we've got parsley, garlic, onions, uh, oregano, basil, lettuce in the winter times, a bunch of greens in the winter times, stuff that just comes back year after year after year. And it's because I've opened the, used the open pollinated seeds and, and let, let nature be in the space. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. What you're doing is world-class breeding. You're adapting <laughs> those crops to your own backyard. And you can do that without paying attention. In fact, yeah. sometimes it's better if you don't, right? That's oh, my gosh, yes. This is, yeah. Yeah. No, it's such, just such a great joy to be a part of this whole thing. I just feel yeah. so blessed. So well, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming on. Yeah. Right, um, thank you, White Bond, for listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And as I always like to say, farm out. Catch on the flip side. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit seedsavinghacked.com dot org for more information that's seeds to three three four 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 or visit seed saving dot org we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. 
Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.